Welcome to the Arrow Buddhist Tradition podcast series. For more information about the Arrow Buddhist Tradition, please go to the website at arrowbuddhism.org. If you wish to make a donation to support this podcast project, please go to the section of the website labeled How to Help. Okay. I'm Nima Ozarkandro, and I'm here with Nocturne Rinpoche to discuss... Tantra and his book, Wearing the Body of Visions. So Rinpoche, one of the first things that Westerners notice when they encounter Tantra or Bhadrayana is the richness of symbols. There's so many symbols and uh, imagery and ritual. What is what is symbolism in Tantra, and what, what is its value? Why is it used? Sometimes Westerners will have this notion, and maybe Westerners isn't the best word, but I know I've heard lots of practitioners who s- seem like they don't understand why there's all these rituals that, and symbols. It seems like a foreign thing, and it has nothing to do with them. How do they relate to it? Could you talk about the importance of the use of symbolism in Tantra and what that all about? Well, I think first you have to look at uh, the fact that um, when anyone looks at the symbolism of Tantra and makes comments like this, it's because they don't see the symbolism and ritual of their own lives. Mm. They take it for granted. But there's actually less symbolism and ritual in Tantra than the average person has going on in their own life. Um, I remember when I was at school, I would say to uh, a young lady, would you like to go to the cinema with me? And she'd say no. And this wasn't because she didn't want to see the movie. She just didn't want to see the movie with me. And the whole thing had nothing to do with seeing a movie anyway. So this is symbolism and ritual. And our lives are full of it. Hello, how are you? As if I wanted to know. Um, You know, you start telling me how you are. It's not really what I asked, even though it was what I asked. So everything is full of ritual and symbolism. Um, if people look at it in terms of Tibetan Tantra and are overwhelmed by it, it's simply that it's symbolism and ritual they're not used to. They don't know what it means. Um, Now, there's no reason why they should want to know what it means unless they feel attracted to it. Um, If you feel attracted to a human being romantically, then you're also operating with symbol and ritual because that person is a symbol of your own uh, inner nature in terms of inner and outer, um, male and female, chandra and pavo. In the um, uh, tantric tradition, we use these words, chandra, and pavo, kandro, meaning female, and pavo, meaning male, but also 
meaning a whole range of other things. And Tantra views us as being uh, internally one and externally the other. And that in the dualized state, we lose contact with that inner quality. Um, so when you fall in love, you're falling in love with a symbol of your own realized nature. Everything is symbolic in that way. Um, you know, if you look at someone you've loved who you no longer love, mm -hmm. you can see how the symbol ceases to have meaning. You know, that, uh, or if you look at somebody who you previously didn't love and now love, and you think, well, you know, she used to have these crooked teeth and this funny hairline that was once unappealing that is now suddenly very appealing. So you've learned that symbol. Mm. That now is a symbol that has some other meaning. So symbolism, um, you know, I'm talking about it in terms of, at first, social convention, what we say to each other, but then at a, at a deeper level of you know, attractiveness or whatever. So uh, symbolism is functioning, you know, throughout our existence. So it's really more a matter of, do I like this symbolism or not? Do I feel attracted to it? So uh, I, I think it's preferable to say, this symbolism doesn't interest me rather than this is a thing that has a lot of symbolism in it because we all have a lot of symbolism. Mm. So it's not a question of symbolism or not because we're swimming in the stuff. Um, what's important really is to see what its function is and to see whether we are attracted to operating in that way. It's not that because it's there and because it's um, spiritually potent that it's remarkable and amazing that we ought to like it. You either like something or you don't. You can't try to like what you don't like. You could be a bit more open to it, but you might not get far. I, I really think you have to fall in love with your religion. And if you don't, you're lost. It's never, nothing's ever really going to happen. And if you look at it uh, in terms of pragmatism, this is good for me, this is a, a very special thing, it's very secret, and this, that, and the other, therefore I ought to do it, that doesn't get you very far. So it's not really a matter of it being alien. I mean, the whole history of the world is full of people being attracted to alien things. Mm -hmm. Sometimes the fact that something's alien makes it even more attractive. You know, that it's, it doesn't really make any sense. I mean, what were a bunch of uh, English people doing getting interested in, in blues? in the 1960s. I mean, why? I mean, that's pretty alien, if you're English. It was being played by you know, black Americans. We don't have much contact there, especially in the 50s we didn't. 
but suddenly it was speaking you know, volumes to people. And I mean, I was one of them. So, and if you ask me what it is about it, you know, why did you start liking blues? I've got no answer. Mm. I just heard it one day, and I thought, oh, this is this is amazing, you know. I want to hear more of this, but I can't tell you why. It's not possible. Like it's not possible to tell anybody why you love the person you love. There's actually no reason there at all. There is a communication there. Or why you like green rather than blue, or hot rather than cold, or this rather than that. So with symbolism, I mean, first, I think you need to be attracted to it. Um, I think before that, you actually have to be attracted to the teacher and the teaching. Mm. Um, you have to be fascinated. And if you are fascinated in some way, and something makes sense to you and you want more of it, then there'll be aspects of it that you find more difficult, and you'll take those on because you want the whole package. I think if you don't want the whole package, there's a problem anyway. If you don't want it enough to want the whole package. When um, I first got together with Khandra Dechen, uh, I knew she had dogs. Now, it's not that I don't like dogs. Dogs are all right, but they jump up on you. You've got to take them for walks, and they're, a, they're an inconvenience unless you're really pretty enthusiastic about them. You know? mm -hmm. and I don't believe in... Um, not taking the job seriously, you know. If you have a dog, you look after the dog. So I thought, right, um, off I go then, off I go to the shop, I buy myself a pair of Wellington boots and a raincoat. Because I know that dog walking is going to be required here. So um, I, I went and got a nice pair of gum boots, and um, I have a relationship with clothes, and so I got, you know, a oil-skinned raincoat, nice long one, and, and I got a pair of barber boots, you know, these sort of green ones with the studs on the bottom, you know, that, um, so I could, you know, do the job properly, because there's a whole package here. There's a whole person, and she has dogs, so I, I'm going to relate to the dogs. I'm not going to um, wish the dogs weren't there. So people have to not wish the symbolism wasn't there. So it's not really a matter, you know, you could explain the symbolism and say, oh, this means that and that's the other. You know, you, you could talk your head off for hours and it would make no difference if the symbolism didn't move you in some way. Uh, now, you've heard of, I guess everyone's heard of Picasso. He's got this painting called Guernica. I don't like it. Um, somebody, um, this doesn't mean I don't think it's good, uh, I, it's not a quality judgment, it just does nothing to me. Actually, I wouldn't even say I don't like it, it is meaningless to me, it's a collection of shapes. Now, someone was very upset in hearing this, oh, you'd like it if I explained to you what it meant. I said, go on then. They explained what it meant, and it, it was very interesting. And at the end of the day, I said, you know, 
it's still a bunch of shapes. <laughs> I appreciate that there's all this behind it, but it's, it's not talking to me. You know, like I, I, I'm not trying to keep it at bay or something. I'm really trying to be open here, but it's still meaningless to me. I said, your, your, your talk about it was more interesting than looking at it. But that's not made a bridge for me. Now, fortunately, there's no reason why I should try to like Guernica or Picasso, even though I think he's a great artist. I've seen his line drawings. They're fantastic. You know, he could draw. I can see that. He could draw exceptionally well. So I knew he didn't make all those bizarre shapes for no good reason. But I still don't like them. Mm -hmm. I still can't enjoy them. So, you know, I, I think that's a, that's a barrier. That's the only barrier there is. Mm. But as to having a barrier to symbolism because uh, you, don't, you think you don't like symbolism, then you have to think again because one's life is full of it and one applies it in everything. But it's not a barrier. It seems like you might be saying it's not a barrier to not understand the symbolism because it's from a foreign culture or it's one is unfamiliar because that can be learned. Mm -hmm. Is that right? It could be learned if you want to learn it. Mm -hmm. You've got to want to. Yeah. That's all tied in, you see. I, I think... The problem largely arises because um, there's a concept there that um, people should want this. I'm going to explain it, and after the explanation, you're going to want to do this, and that might not be true. And I think that people also feel that, well, because it's a religion, it should be available to everyone. Well, it is, but everyone might not like it. Mm. So I think liking has to come into enjoyment. Mm. If you don't enjoy a religion, I don't really think you're a practitioner of it. Mm. You, know, you, you know, if you don't enjoy a religion, then you're a masochist. <laughs> you know, I mean, sure, there'll always be aspects of of religious practice that are challenging, that are difficult, but there's got to be enough that's enjoyable about it. Otherwise, why are you doing it? Mm -hmm. That's suspicious to me. Because you know? mm -hmm. uh, I suppose basically, I, 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 I'm, I'm, if I had to describe myself, I'd say you know, I, I'm a hedonist. I like enjoyment. And if there's... Um, but in terms of enjoyment, you know, uh, we were talking about horse riding earlier, and um, I love horse riding, but uh, I, I didn't enjoy hitting the ground over 20 times. So, you know, when I say I'm a hedonist, you know, there may be a few caveats to that, you know, that you have to be prepared to work at what you enjoy. That's important. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, you know, if you enjoy some aspect, you know, if you're intrigued with Vajrayana and you want to uh, make that your life, then there's going to be the challenge of understanding the symbolism. But when you understand the symbolism, I mean, 
you don't have to become a professor of Vajrayana symbolism. The only symbolism you need to understand is the symbolism you practice. That could be fairly simple. You know, you don't have to know the symbolism of, of every yidam, even in your own school. You only have to understand the symbolism of the yidam you practice, the yidam being uh, the awareness being, mm. the visualized uh, focus who could be Padmasambhava or Yeshit Sogyal or any one of a, no, uh, a number of... Um, anthropomorphic forms. What, what is Tantra anyway? People use this word in many different ways and even in non-Buddhist traditions. What is Tantra? What does it mean? What is Tantric Buddhism? Can you talk about this term? Uh, how does that relate to Vajrayana? Oh, well, Vajrayana... Um, I can really only speak from the point of view of the Nyingma tradition and from the point of view of a lineage of that which is largely based in Dzogchen. And from that point of view, the word Vajrayana means all six tantras including Dzogchen then when you use the word Tantra, that then applies to all the Tantras apart from Dzogchen. With Tantra, the um, principle is transformation. So from the point of view of Dzogchen, we look at the Yanas as Sutra, Tantra, and Dzogchen. Sutra is the path of renunciation. Tantra, the path of transformation. Dzogchen, the path of self-liberation. Self-liberation meaning of itself, it liberates itself. The Tibetan word rung, as in rangdro, um, self-liberation, uh, we don't really have a word in English for rung. We translate it as self, mm -hmm. but it really means of itself. So of itself, it liberates itself. There's no external agency involved. Nothing is transformed from this to that. There's no method that's applied that is different from the situation itself. That's Dzogchen. But Tantra is transformation um, using symbol. And the basis of symbol is that we are symbols of ourselves. We're not the real thing. The real thing is the non-dual being, the beginninglessly enlightened being. But if we don't recognize that, then we exist at a symbolic level. Now, the interesting thing about that, in being a symbol of yourself, that symbol can then become a method that allows you to understand what you actually are. Because 
that symbol is connected with the real state. The symbol is a distortion of the real state. The symbol is uh, dualism. So we are all our own symbol. Mm. So in terms of Tantra, because there is this connection between the symbol and what is symbolized, and here I'd like to make a you know, distinction between the idea of a created symbol, like a logo or a, a sign of some kind that, that a graphic designer creates, and a naturally occurring symbol. So the symbol that we are is simply the distortion of our non-dual state. But it contains the energy of the non-dual state, therefore takes us back to the non-dual state. Now, based on this, um, instead of taking ourselves as we appear as a symbol, because we don't trust that. Mm. And why should I trust the image of a, of a tubby, balding, middle-aged Englishman? Well, actually, I'm not even middle-aged for that much longer. I'm knocking on 60, but uh, anyway, um, you know, that doesn't inspire me. I mean, if I was to visualize myself as maybe Jimi Hendrix, that would be inspiring. Muddy waters. Do you remember, Jay? You know, somebody worth something. Um, so in terms of Tantra, we have many possibilities for this through Padmasambhava and Yishid Sogyal. The origins of Tantra in Tibet, the origins of Vajrayana in Tibet. Um, we can dissolve our experience of ourselves into emptiness. That's a prerequisite. We need to be able to experience emptiness by letting go of thought, by being able to dwell in the empty state. If we can do that, then we can dissolve self concept into emptiness. And then we can arise in the form of Pamasambhava or Yishit Sogyal or any one of thousands of other yidams. And then that is uh, what transforms our distorted being, our dualistically distorted being. Because the symbol is something that's realized in vision as a method by somebody who realizes the non-dual state. Uh, a yidam can be um, a method that an enlightened master lends the world. So you have Padmasambhava who uh, lived historically, but we use him as a symbol of the realized state rather than using my own self-existent symbol mm. because I don't trust that symbol. So I use Padmasambhava instead or his consort Yishid Sogyal instead. But then I've got to be inspired. <laughs> you know, it's not just that's the way you do it. So I pick one of these un unlikely um, oriental figures. If they don't mean anything to you, then there's going to be no charge with it. There's going to be no electricity there. That charge comes from your relationship with your teacher. 
and with your lineage. You have to feel at home there, and the imagery has to speak to you. You know, it has to be um, meaningful beyond um, the meaning of the form that you can explain. Like you can't explain your husband or your wife. You can't say, you know, uh, I'll explain to you now why that man is attractive. Yeah. You, you can't do it. It's not actually possible. You know, you could hint at it, but you'd have to go into poetry. You know, you, you'd have to go beyond language to do that. So for Tantra to be functional, you really have to have a relationship with the teacher. You have to experience devotion. And then, oh, that's another can of worms, devotion. I mean, it's, um, it's <laughs> uh, devotion doesn't mean you've gone gooey over somebody, you know, because they're old and oriental and very sweet. All these nice feelings, <laughs> but nothing to do with anything. Um, you know, devotion is um, uh, appreciation and knowledge. You know, you can um, you can like Mozart, for example. You can say, "Oh, he wrote a lot of very." pretty tunes and then you get to learn about music and you get to play a musical instrument and the more proficient you become at playing your instrument the more knowledge you have of that music the more amazing he becomes likewise Bach or, or anybody if you don't know anything about contrapuntal music then Bach is going to seem like, oh, it's very complex and clever, you know, listen to all that going on. Then you get to understand about it, so there's knowledge and appreciation. So it really takes a competent musician to really appreciate those people. If you're not, you can't really appreciate them. You can appreciate them in one way, but the more you learn... And the more skill you have yourself, the more impressed you are by that. So um, this is what devotion actually is. And you can't have devotion unless you're a practitioner and unless you have sufficient experience of practice. It's not going to arise. So that needs to arise. And when that exists, then you start to appreciate the lineage and you start to appreciate the symbolism of the lineage and then you just fall in love with it all. And then you don't actually have to understand anything. Mm -hmm. I mean, you can look at a picture of Pamas and Bhava and I could say, right, I'll talk you through it. This is what all these things mean. And at the end of the day, I could have been describing Guernica to you and it would be as meaningless. Mm -hmm. So I've, des I've, I've described every object there that he holds, what his clothes mean, what his hat means, what the whole thing means. But it's meaningless unless you like it. 
that's, that's really crucial. Um, Chimmy Riggs and Rubichet, um never, ever answered questions on symbolism. Mm. Somebody would say, what does this yidam mean? They said, practice and find out. <laughs> that's all he'd ever say. Um, in some ways, I should have taken that line myself. But I tend to explain because sometimes there is some inspirational quality in hearing what things mean, but it's by no means guaranteed. You know, it can make a bridge or not. Well, speaking of Padmasambhava, in your book, Wearing the Body of Visions, on page 133, it says, to really practice in the tantric tradition, Padmasambhava has to be understood. So who is Padmasambhava, and what, is, what, is, what do we need to understand about Padmasambhava? Well, <laughs> Padmasambhava is, uh, uh, means lotus-born. And lotus-born, uh, the lotus grows in some kind of stinking quagmire. Um, it emerges from the slime and opens out and is pristine. Uh, this is a symbol of what we are. That this lotus is our beginningless non-dual state. And the quagmire is our uh, neuroses. But this lotus also requires this slime to grow. It gets its nutrition from that slime too. Trungpa Rinpoche used to describe our neuroses as the uh, fertilizer of our practice. But, uh, you know, it's really peculiar um, hearing bits of my book quoted and being asked questions on it because um, uh, the thing is a, a kind of a flow in the book. Mm-hmm. And when you pick out one piece and say, what does this bit mean? It probably only means what it means in the context of what went before and what came after. Mm-hmm. Plus the fact that I wrote it sometime last century. <laughs> so I, I'm not clear what led up to that sentence. And so, uh, you know, there would have been a train of thought going there. There was gradually putting something across. But um, understanding Padmasambhava is understanding what lotus born means. It's also understanding a whole tradition that was inspired by him, there's the whole idea of what he represented as the um, coming together of a great number of different teachings historically from the 84 Mahasiddhas who received Vajrayana from Shakyamuni Buddha and then Padmasambhava gathered that in again to himself, and that was what was taken to Tibet. So it's vast. Mm. 
And then there's also the aspect of him that's completely outside any explanation, where there are those people who um, relate to him, and you can't really explain that. There's either a communication or there's not. You know, some people like Jesus, and that whole thing, you know, you'll just, you'll just say that name to some people, not when you stub your toe, I mean. But, <laughs> but uh, you know, they'll have a response to it. That's really just full of meaning, you know, endless. Yeah. Uh, I shouldn't have said that, should I? <laughs> Never mind. Uh, I actually have a great deal of respect for him and quote him often. One of my favorites is, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Uh, not, Father, forgive them, for I'm a really nice guy and like to forgive everybody, but because they don't know what they're doing, because they're tomyo, you know, they're idiots. You know? So what can you do with an idiot but forgive them? You know? That's, if, they, if they knew what they were doing, it would be really bad, but they don't. They've got no idea. That's one of my favorite quotes there, because I think it's really important, you know? When you're judging other people for what they've done, you have to think, well, it made sense to them at the time. They thought it was all right. With this term tantra and the principle of transformation is what you said earlier, how does that relate to the idea of being what we are? I know that... uh, to quote the book again on page three in Wearing the Body of Visions, you say, Tantra is to be totally identified with outrageous expressions of what we essentially are. And I've heard you saying this before, that phrase of being precisely what you are. How does transformation and being what we are relate to one another? Yeah, but it's through the outrageous expressions. Oh. You can't take out the middle bit, otherwise it means something different. Okay. The outrageous expressions are the yidams. Mm. Mm. An outrageous expression, what would that be if it wasn't a yidam? Um, I was talking once to a medic in the army. And he told me something very interesting that as part of his job, he had to go into this house one day and remove this old man who died in bed. And he'd been there for a while. And without getting, I don't think I can avoid getting gruesome about it, but there was a whole bunch of fluid there and he'd started kind of dissolving and picking him up, bits of him got uh, under your fingernails, you know, it was... uh, uh, His immediate response was vomiting. Mm -hmm. He then uh, put on his green stuff that they wore, and it was suddenly all right. He, He could cope with it, because he was wearing the body of visions. Wow. In terms of being a medic, I'm now a medic. 
I'm now not the person who vomits. I'm the person who gets on with the job and does it. And I found that a really interesting story. I've always remembered that because that's quite similar, you see. So um, you can say, I'm not the person who gets bent out of shape because of this, that, and the other. I'm Yoshitsogyo. That's fundamentally what it is. But you actually have to be Yishitsogya, which means you have to be able to dissolve your experience of yourself into emptiness. You, you can't just imagine, I can't imagine I'm Yishitsogya. Otherwise, you know, it would be a new age practice. You actually have to be Yishitsogya. You talked about devotion as appreciation and knowledge and something that grows as we grow in our awareness. The more we practice, the more we're able to appreciate the teacher and devotion is there. And so what in Tantra, devotion is talked about as the most important quality. Oftentimes I've seen that and people will feel maybe overwhelmed i've heard practitioners say well then how do we cultivate devotion or but it sounds like more something that naturally occurs through practice mm -hmm. is that right or how do we cultivate? i don't believe you can cultivate it there are practices for cultivating it but i don't believe in them mm. the only way you can cultivate devotion is through practice through experience and through knowledge. If, if your knowledge develops and your experience develops, then you'll gain devotion. Uh, that's what devotion is. Now, um, I could not ride a horse whilst wanting to ride a horse and watch people having horse riding lessons. My level of trust in that teacher would not change at all because I wouldn't know what was going on. I always used to watch Kondratajan's lesson before I had mine. And it was very interesting because sometimes I just did not know what Melissa was talking about. I didn't know what contradiction had done wrong. I didn't know that the horse was on the wrong lead leg. Or what do you mean lead leg? What's was, I had no idea what it was. And then after a while, I started understanding the instructions and the criticisms. And I could see that. I couldn't see it before. But that's only because my writing had improved to a point where I could see things I couldn't see before. And it's really no different with a spiritual teacher. It's the same thing, except there's no lead leg involved. But, you know, your experience has to move on, and then you appreciate the teacher because you can see what the teacher can do. But you have to know enough to appreciate that. And not just 
uh, intellectual information. You have to have knowledge of practice. Then you've got devotion. And trying to cultivate it any other way is... Um, Like, why walk halfway across Tibet to gain merit when you could see it? You walk halfway across to Tibet to gain merit so that in the next life you'll see it. So why not just see it? You have to remember that I have a bad mind and I always come back to this and I think, well, why, why do something else when you could do the real thing? You know, why cultivate devotion when you could actually... Uh, experience that devotion by practicing and by gaining experience and learning to authentically appreciate the teacher. There doesn't seem to be any purpose, from my point of view, to doing anything else. I mean, what happens if you cultivate... I mean, what is this feeling you cultivate anyway if it's not that? Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, people... You know, beating themselves up because they don't have devotion. You know, if you want to beat yourself up, why not put that energy into practice? (laughs) Just have devotion occur like it should occur. Like it occurs with appreciating a horse riding teacher, a great musician, or or anybody. It all works the same way. You get to learn the feel, you get to develop experience, and then you appreciate. Mm-hmm. Then that's devotion. So it's not actually that mysterious. So for people beginning Vajrayana practice, then maybe their devotion is just in some beginning form, and then it develops mm-hmm. over time through practice. Yeah. And if there's no devotion in the beginning, then there's no Vajrayana practice? Well, um, devotion in the beginning is probably fascination. And I think that um, one has to respect wherever anybody starts. Mm. Because you can only start where you start. You can't start at some other point. You know, you can't say, well, you've got to have devotion. I mean, people come knocking at your door, you know, religious types. And they say, oh, you should believe this book. You know, I mean, it's happened to me. I said, well, how do I do that? You know, how do I have faith? <laughs> do I stand on one leg? Do I beat my head on the wall? Are you going to sing me a song? Are you going to whack me around the head, well, how am I going to have it? You know? You're going to flick the switch somewhere? You, you can't just have faith or have devotion. Like you can't fall in love. Right, you, fall in love with him, go on. <laughs> What's, like, how are you going to do that? You, you know, you, you go, well, I ought to, because it's written here, I should fall in love with X... Mm-hmm. You know? Right, where is he? There he is, right. Um, strain, you know, like, let's, let's get some love going. No, it's, I mean, it's completely loony, the idea that you could do that. 
I mean, uh, it's, it's, I guess it's even more loony with falling in love with somebody, but I mean, at least for practice, you've got something you can do about it. You can sit. And then if you sit and, and, and you pursue that, then you'll have experience and then devotion will arise and then everything will fall into place or not. But I mean, it starts with some kind of fascination, which takes us back to what we were saying earlier about the yanas, you know, um, the first two that aren't spoken of a great deal, the shravaka yana and the pratyeka yana. The shravaka yana is the um, vehicle of the hearers, the listeners. You could add now also the readers or the workshop attendees. And, you know, these are people who are interested but they're not interested enough to practice, they want to hear things. That's where it begins. If you hear it long enough, and you read it enough, eventually it becomes too irritating not to want to participate. So you participate, and you begin to change, you notice the change, as soon as you notice a change, you get a line forming, and then you see where that line goes. And you want to follow that line. That's called pratyekayana, the solitary realizer. Like, I want it for myself. I want this realization. I want to change and grow, and etc. Then having done that and changed, then you get to realize that this could be of benefit to others who are not changing and who are beating themselves up and each other up about everything you could imagine. And, and then compassion arises. You feel sorry for people. You know, I used to be like that. I used to whack myself around the head for no apparent reason every day, you know, uh, make myself miserable. And now I do that a lot less. So then compassion naturally arises from that, that you want to help people. Because you see it's possible You know, anyone who's having a hard time uh, doing something or, or whatever, and you can do it, you know, you, you feel moved to help them. Say, oh, I can help you do that. I know the right address. Or, 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 or you just, um, you know, press all control delete. That'll help. <laughs> um, Unless you're a sociopath and don't want to help people. Um, but most people do. And so, you know, the more capacity you have, the more you want to help people. You know, it, it's, it, it's actually quite natural. So uh, the whole devotion thing begins with um, fascination that turns into inspiration. Um, but you have to begin somewhere. And you can't begin by reasoning it you know, on the basis that you should be interested because this is a good thing. There are lots of good things out there, but not everybody likes them. So there just has to be some kind of attraction and initially, that attraction could be almost anything. Mm. 
But the attraction has got to pull you on so that you begin to practice. And then once you begin to practice, then there's some possibility of uh, devotion emerging from that. And as the devotion develops, so the desire to practice more develops. And then everything encourages everything else within that. It becomes a system. You know, the more you practice your instrument, the more you practice your writing lessons, the more you get out of it, the more you get out of it, the more you practice. Because the thing's ex- exponential, or can be, if you allow it to be. If you allow it to be, that's a wonderful statement. <laughs> But um, I think most people are held back by wanting conflicting things in their lives. Mm. They they don't want to let go of anything. I generally say, and Contradiction says, that you you can have whatever you want in life, just not everything. Mm. Maybe only one thing. Wow. (laughs) Uh, But if you want it, you can go for it and get it. You just got to want it enough. If you want it enough, then you'll go for it. But you know, if you want this, and this undermines that, then you never get anything. Wow. So you know, if you're going to be a practitioner, well, it it kind of dominates your life. You know, mm. <laughs> you know, you can't. Uh, you know, it's it, it's not it's not like stamp collecting. <laughs> you know. You can you, you you know stamp collecting you can do on the side you know you can be a stamp collector you can be a war between the states reenactor you know you can that I, no I think that does dominate your life actually but um, <laughs> that's pretty much a religion from what I can see <laughs> I you know I really admire those those people you know um, I, I I've read some stuff and I think. God, these people are great practitioners, you know. If they turn their mind to practice, just think what they could do. I mean, there are fellows who will starve themselves so they can, be, they can just be the body type of, of some Confederate soldier in 1865, you know, um, and they'll, they'll encourage lice. Wow. And the whole deal, and what they're after is period rush. And period rush is when you suddenly lose track of the 20th century or the 21st century, and suddenly you're there, and it's 1865, and, and uh, that's what they're going for. I, I, you've got to admire it. Well, you don't actually, but I do. Because um, I think, well, you know, if, if practitioners worked at it with that degree of intensity, it would be amazing. But there's devotion there. I mean, they're kind of learning about it and getting the stuff back from it. You can see the principle and function of it. You can see how it works. So if practitioners were as um, um, devout, as, as, as hardcore reenactors, that's what's needed. Yeah. <laughs>
Rinpoche, what is the one taste in, you mentioned this in wearing the body of vision, this term, one taste, and I think probably not everyone listening is familiar with the meaning. Often when, when I've either heard this principle talked about by lamas or read it, the example is given of eating disgusting food. And so what does this have to do? What is the one taste of here in the, wearing the body of visions? He said, Tantra introduces us to the one taste of emptiness and form. You mean like Mexican food? Yeah. <laughs> in order for this to be possible, we need to actively savor dualistic tension rather than experience it in some kind of victim role. So what is this notion of one taste? What does it have to do with our everyday experience? And Rochig. Uh, raw is taste, chic is one, one mm. taste, uh, equates primarily to the one taste of emptiness and form, mm. its non-duality, and there are many symbols of it. Um, prior to experiencing the one taste of emptiness and form, you can look at um, taking pleasure and pain equally mm. or just considering that, that they have one taste. And it's not that they have one taste, that they're the same, you know. You know, I, I could give you a million dollars or whack your toe with a hammer and it would be equal to you. Or, or you'd need psychological care if that was the case. Yeah. But, um, uh, it's a practice, and in terms of uh, different tantric systems, they'll you know do things like you know as part of a um, transmission of one taste. Um, there'll be a dog turd and a rose that are held under your nose at the same time. But that's a symbol. It's not that you see think, oh, uh, uh, you know. Uh, I think that um, in India, there are, there are different strands of practitioners who would be more or less literal around this. Mm -hmm. Some would eat feces, and they would eat snakes and bugs and and uh, approach it in that way, but that's actually a, a complete distortion. Mm. Well, that might cause people some relief, maybe. Yeah. Um, but one taste, emptiness and form. And uh, in terms of its applicability, or, or its, um, it is everyday life. It's just the arising and dissolving of everything. How this situation becomes that situation. How this like becomes irrelevant or turns into a dislike. How this friend becomes an enemy. How, how you know, the functioning of confusion, bewilderment, ambiguity. So it's being aware of that ambiguous quality of reality. Mm. I think rather than looking at uh, 
food that's disgusting, um, it can be interesting to look at foodstuffs that are uh, borderline. Like certain cheeses are really borderline, you know. <laughs> you know, and you can eat some. Oh, what's that cheese I like? Um, Montbriac. Yeah, it is a sort of borderline cheese. You know, it, it just hovers there between beautiful and disgusting. That's interesting. And then actually spirits too. You know, um, spirits are painful to drink. Well, unless, you know, unless you're an alcoholic and you tip the stuff back with no regard. But if you, if you approach drinking spirits um, for their flavor and you, and you have a little and you drink with some degree of um, appreciation and common sense, then you'll be aware of, of the pain involved in drinking it. It's not an easy thing to have in your mouth. Unless you're inured to it, I mean. Yeah. So, so it's it's um, there are all kinds of experiences like that that are kind of ooh, they, they kind of teeter in the balance. You know, those things are useful. Like like you know, um, we were just on retreat up at Fort Bragg, and um, a couple of people went into the sea for a little dip with me, and that's cold. You know, and that's yeah. Well, this is kind of painful, but uh, it's also pleasurable. Um, it's tricky. You know, they're all, I, and I think those things are useful. You know, those are things we can experience without having to you know, get too far into snakes and turds and, and the whole <laughs> realm of you know, you know, wacko. Things. As far as experiencing pleasure and pain, this is something that you also mentioned in the context of this idea of one taste and in this example. When we're, it seems like some people have the idea that enlightenment equates with no pain or feeling only pleasure all the time. And maybe that comes from other religions or... Can, can you speak about that, the idea of pleasure and pain in Tantra and in Buddhism and what, what our um, relationship to pleasure and pain is or could be? I think probably the best example um, is the fact that uh, Marpa wept when his son died. And um, people said, well, what are you upset about? And he, sa- and he said, my son's dead. Mm-hmm. Um, now, that's something... Um, experiencing non-duality is not something that that removes us from pain. It removes us from self-created pain. But if you're not sad that someone's dead, you were never happy they were alive. Mr. E. Smith 
of 32 Lobelia Avenue, Morden, died last night. Well, I don't care. I don't even know him. I just made his name up and the address. Mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, what, what does that mean? But, you know, if you loved the person, then you're going to be sad. But that sadness could be quite simple. I mean, I'm still sad that my friends Steve and Ron are dead. They died in 1970. I can feel sad when I think about them. Not always when I think about them. Sometimes I'm very happy. Well, it depends what, what kind of memory is there, but it's not with me all the time. So, you know, I think the, the concept of uh, entering into some eternal blissful state is very much concerned with um, uh, you know, becoming the enlightened android. Mm. And if I was going to become an enlightened android, I'd rather be Arnold Schwarzenegger. <laughs> I want your clothes, your boots, and your motorcycle. <laughs> such a good movie. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um. I think that that tends to fit in with the world of samsara. Mm. And then when you uh, move beyond samsara, you move beyond the world and the body and you're forever happy because there's nothing to be unhappy about. Mm -hmm. uh, that is a um, world and body negative view. There's actually nothing wrong with being sad. Being sad's all right. It's, it's not a big deal unless the loss you're experiencing uh, has got a lot of 30-ton horses attached to it that are linking it in with my existence and my fear and everything else, which is not a sort of a clean, honest sadness. It's really complicated, and that can be lost. I mean, I don't resent any feeling of sadness I have about Steve or Ron or Kunzang Dodger and Bache, who, who died three weeks ago. I cried at the time, and that maybe lasted about um, five minutes or so, off and on. And uh, then when that was through, um, well, I miss him, but um, I'm not making something out of it that there isn't there. I always knew he was going to die before me, so it's not like a big shock. He was 81. Um, so you could say, well, you, you knew he was going to die. It should be totally fine then. Mm. Well, it was, it's not totally fine. <laughs> I'd rather change it. But um, I, I'm not hanging on to his life like some kind of leech, you know. And I think this is why people get really angry with people who've died. You know? mm -hmm. That's a strange thing about grief. People sometimes have a lot of anger. How could you do this to me? 
you know, you've died and made me miserable, uh, you know, and uh, then people go into the repression of that anger and there's a whole bunch of psychological mishigas that goes on. I'm not supposed to be using tantric technical terms, am I? Sorry, it's Yiddish, mishigas, craziness. So, um, I think Zong uh, Sakyenser pointed out that um, wanting to be happy is not really the motivation for the Buddhism. Uh, if you want to be happy, um, Happiness is, is actually a side effect. If you want happiness, you're always going to judge your practice in terms of, is this making me happy? Uh, the only reason for practicing Dharma is uh, because you want to understand the nature of reality, not because you want to be happy. It's not that there's anything wrong with happiness, but if that's your main motivation, it's a big problem. Because then you're always going to be judging your practice on whether you're happy or not. You know, has this given me a husband, wife, and 2.4 children, and a house, and a dog, and a canary, and a, and a basking shark, and a squid, and everything else I'm supposed to have? No. You know, that's... And then what happens when my hair starts falling out, my teeth start falling out, and I go blind, deaf, dumb, and everything else that happens to you. You know, so. you know, I've got this whistling in my ears at the moment. I asked Trugiel about it, who's a doctor, and he says, yeah, well, it happens when you get old. I said, right, there's nothing you can do. No, all right, then. <laughs> Never mind. <laughs> got a whistle in my ears now, then. Right, it's not bad enough that my hair's falling out and hair grows out of my nose and ears. All kinds of terrible things happen. You know, I either get bent out of shape about it or just be amused. You'll laugh on the other side of your face when the hair starts growing out of your nose, I tell you. <laughs> <laughs> then you're going to buy electrical devices, you know, oh, God, it's not into it. Rinpoche, in... Tantra, one of the central principles is the relationship with one's lama. Could you talk about why that's so important, for, especially for people who are unfamiliar with that idea and just sort of what, what's, the, what's behind that? Same as, wanting, same as having to have a riding teacher if you want to ride a horse. If you don't want to ride a horse, then you don't need a riding teacher. If, if you want to practice Dharma, then you need a teacher. You need someone who has practiced that or whatever it is and lived by that, and, and, you, and, you, and you see a result, and that's what, that's what you're moving toward. But it's, it's, it is different from a writing teacher or a musical teacher, but, um, but they, they have a great deal in common It's not something you can teach yourself. 
you need to see an example of it. And I think that's, that's really important with... Um, you can't just learn spiritual techniques from somebody who knows about them. They have to look as if something's happened to them with it. Like there's this thing called the rainbow diet. Do you ever hear the rainbow diet? I don't know what end you started. You start eating purple stuff and you end with red stuff. And, um, and, and what I want to say is, well, what's it done for you then? And, you know, if there's no demonstrable difference or if they look in bad shape, then why should I do that? So whoever's teaching something, they've got to look as if it's done them some good. They've got to look different from how I am. I've got to think, well, I've got this problem and that problem and the other problem they haven't. You know, I respond in this way and they don't respond in that way. Um, so having a teacher, I mean, is fairly pragmatic. You know, you need a guide. I mean, you know, if, you know, if I was going to go out into the wilderness somewhere on a horse and I knew that someone else had been there and come back, I'd say, hey, I'd like to tag along with you and go out there because I want to experience that wilderness. But I don't want to get lost and eaten by wolves and later regurgitated because they didn't like me or something. That's not what I want. So I want somebody who knows the area so it's, it's fairly pragmatic. And then you go into that area with them, and they obviously know the area. They know how to light a fire. They know how to light a fire when it's raining. Wow. Oh, what was his name? Ben, the wrangler at Laughing Water Ranch, lit a fire with burritos. <laughs> he just used those things as yeah, right, I'm gonna use this. Yeah, he just set fire to burritos and, and got this dry wood going with wow. them. He could light a fire with anything. Ah, oh, that's impressive, you know. <laughs> Best thing to do with burritos actually. <laughs> fire lighters. <laughs> I apologize to everyone who likes burritos. The <laughs> problem with me is I'm very politically incorrect, so you have to watch out for that. <laughs> so it's pragmatic, Ramaji, that that's why we need to, to have a teacher in Tantra. And one of the things that seems to come up for a lot of practitioners, and I hear this question all the time, is, how do they choose a teacher, or how do they know, or how, how does that, how does that choice come about? And I know for some people it's sort of obvious and instantaneous, and then there are others who might be around a teacher for years, and then they finally realize, oh, that's my teacher. What can you say to advise people in that process who are trying to find their teacher or determine whether the person that they're taking teachings from is, is going to be their root teacher? Well, 
If you've got the idea that you need to get married and you start looking around for someone to marry, um, you'd probably... Um, I mean, what would you do about that? It's kind of weird. It would be weird, wouldn't it? Yeah. <laughs> um, wanting to get married happens after you've already met somebody. But you can't go around surveying uh, groups of people for eligible partners. All right, okay, well, she's a bit short, she's a bit tall, she's a bit fat, she's a bit thin, um, don't like her nose. Um, you can't really do that. I, mean, I think people do this, and it's completely mm -hmm. crazy. Mm -hmm. um, you actually have to fall in love with the person. Um, and that happens by accident. Um, every teacher of Dharma teaches Dharma, so they're all the same. Every man and woman out there has two legs, two arms, one nose, if you're lucky, um, and, and that's the deal. They're all the same, basically, but there would seem to be some subtle difference there. And it's more or less like that with teachers. Um, now, if you've got a problem about finding your teacher, it's no, really, not really any different from having a problem finding a husband or wife. And there's nothing you can do in particular to find your husband or wife. I think there are dating agencies and stuff like that. And I guess a dating agency is a little bit like the, um, you know, you get magazines here to tell you about all the workshops that are going on. You know, that's the spiritual dating agency. Hmm. And so you go along to the workshop, you hear someone talk, and it's probably as weird as going on a date with somebody you get from a dating agency. There you are in the restaurant, and you're thinking, hi. Um, <laughs> I, I, I've never done that, but it must be kind of curious, because you're, you're aware you're checking each other out. and. Um, I, uh, it's a shame I've never done it because I can't really talk about it. You know, it's not my experience, but I can imagine it's very weird. Mm -hmm. You know, and then you say, right, well, um, nice to have the dinner. And, um, and then you just don't say see you again or you don't make any other arrangement. Maybe the person says, well, could we meet again? And you often say, well, actually, I'm very busy. And you have to tell some whole load of lies about how, how you're... You just caught them on the cusp of going to Argentina for 20 years or something. <laughs> so, but um, so um, I'm a bit useless on this question because I never had problems of that nature. Um, if I had, then I could be more useful from my own experience, but. Um, I went to India, I met Dujram Pache, I studied with him, he sent me to Kunzang Dujram Pache, and he was my main teacher, and that was it. And so uh, I didn't go through any angst about, is this, my, uh, is this really my teacher or not? You know, even though he was exceptionally mean to me at first. Well, in my terms, he was. The first thing he said was, what's this idiot want? So, I mean, you know, that, that isn't really what you want to hear. Mm. I mean, you can't go gooey about that, can you? Mm. That, that doesn't work. So, I mean, that kind of 
devotion was not feasible. It had to be something else. It couldn't be uh, some kind of romance going on there. You know, because he shouted at me all the time, you know. He gradually stopped shouting at me. But, but um, um, I don't know really... Um, it's not a good example, is it? It's a really bad example uh, in terms of saying some, somebody else. I mean, I wouldn't recommend that anyone let anyone shout at them. But if I talk about my own life, then somehow that was acceptable. Dudra Rinpoche had sent me to him, so that's what I did. But I had some uncanny feeling that this was the right place to be. But then, you, you know, if you asked me to explain what that was all about, I couldn't. So, um, you can't just have a root teacher because you know you ought to have one. It's like saying, well, you ought to be married now. I think parents maybe say these things to their children as if, oh, oh, all right, then <laughs> I'm going to do that. <laughs> How are you going to do that? I mean, sure. I mean, I, I think it's... Um, Your root teacher, anyway, is the teacher who shows you the nature of mind. That's, that's crucial. I mean, before then, you're training. I think that in the Tibetan tradition, there's probably, because of historical factors and cultural factors, a little bit too much emphasis on entering into the relationship with the Vajra master too quickly, the Tsawai Lama, the root teacher. Um, and so it doesn't give people enough chance to you know, experience different teachers and different systems and find out where they feel at home. But feeling at home doesn't necessarily mean that everything's comfortable, because homes are not comfortable. They're sometimes comfortable, and then you need to fix the roof. Mm -hmm. Then you need to brush the f flue, the chimney, and then um, you start getting cracks in the ceiling that you have to plaster. You know, there's things that are demanded of you. So, you know, if you're going to look after your home and take care of it, then work is expected. Otherwise, the thing um, gets out of hand. But um, you just have to take advice and follow it and see what happens. If the, if the advice works out, then you start learning something. If the advice doesn't work out, then you also learn something. But you really have to take the advice and implement it. Like I had to ride around the equestrian center, bouncing up and down on the saddle, hanging onto the saddle um, quite a lot before I learned to canter. So that was uncomfortable. But I had to persevere. If I hadn't persevered, I would never found out. So you go to some place and you try it out. You see what it's like. You see what the practice is like. You ask questions. You get answers. And you see if it's workable. Mm 
So, I mean, you know, you have to be intelligent about it. You know, like if you want to buy a car or if you want to, you know, buy anything that's an investment, you know, a big investment for you, then the best thing to do is to research and to look for advice, ask questions. You know, they're magazines, aren't they? What, which car or which suppository or, you know, there are all kinds of different things, you know, and you read the details and you say, right, there's this one, that one. And you may have to ask other people for advice and say, well, it says this here. What does this mean? And, um, you know, what's the difference between these two things? And, um, you know, what do I get? The Les Paul or the ES-235? And you've got to find out people who've played those guitars and say, well, you know, why did you get that one then? They'll tell you. So it's just, I, I think, mainly common sense. You've got to follow your nose and be intelligent. And no one's going to do it for you. You, you can't rely on Lama X saying that Lama Y is kosher. Mm. Otherwise, you may have well have gone to Lama X. Mm. You, know, if, you know, why rely on this one to say that one's all right? Because you've actually got the trust in the one you ask the question of. It's always crazy to do that. Okay, thank you. What about this notion of Vajra pride? What is that? Vajra pride. Well, Vajra pride, put very simply, is... Um, uh, the word pride is one of the five neuroses. It's the earth element neurosis. And one of the um, attributes of Tantra is that it uses the language of neurosis to describe the realized state. This keys in with the fact that we're symbols of ourselves. So the neurotic complex that we are is a symbol of our non-dual state because it contains the energy of the non-dual state. So Tantra is highly colorful in the way that it uses the symbolism of neurosis to talk about the realized state, so Vajra Pride. Uh, what Vajra Pride usually means is the experience of being able to arise as the yidam. That's what it means. But you can have Vajra everything else too. You could have uh, Vajra stupidity, you know, Vajra anxiety, Vajra lust, and uh, Vajra rage. You know, all five, you can, you can say Vajra, and then it has some other meaning there. You know, the meaning of Vajra pride, then you look at uh, what's meant by the earth element in terms of equanimity, equality, wealth, generosity. And Vajra pride is the experience of the great wealth inherent in the form of the Yidam. 
Vajra pride, you could also say empty pride. Or indestructible pride. It's not dualistic pride. It's non-referential. Of course, pride is referential. So as soon as you say non-referential pride, then it's not actually pride you're talking about. But the word pride is used to show that the energy of the dualized state is not separate from the energy of the non-dual state. In Wearing the Body of Visions, in page 89, you talk about this idea of, of uh, in Tantra, you wouldn't become arrogant. And here it says, because what you know whatever develops is due to the realization of the Lama. And that seems to be a really extraordinary thing about Buddhism to me, is it doesn't make people more arrogant. <laughs> I think when they're genuinely practicing, and well, could you talk about that? What, how that, how our relationship with the Lama causes that to be the case, or is a factor in that? I am not clear that I am entirely understanding your question. Here in the uh, in this same section, where it's talking about Vajra pride and how that's mm-hmm. different than arrogance. In that same section, it says... Well, because it's non-referential. Okay. To, to have pride, there's got to be a reference point there. Mm. Like, I'm better than you and him and her. Right. Uh, but if there's no reference point to it, that sense of there's no than in the better. Yeah. <laughs> it's non-referential. Um Great, thank you. You also mentioned about the ambiguity in things, in pleasure and pain, and in Wearing the Body of Visions, you talk about Tantra as being the state where we embrace ambivalence. Mm-hmm. And so what, what does that mean? Could you talk about what it would be to embrace ambivalence um, when one has ambivalent feelings about a situation or another person, or is it what is that? Well, How do we work uh, with it? Embracing ambivalence really concerns not trying to resolve the ambivalence, merely to feel safe. Wow. Mm-hmm. So having to say it's this or that, right? Okay, this. Or that. So I say that, right, that. I'll I'll go with that. Because I feel more comfortable saying that than it could be this or that. Mm -hmm. Not knowing. So just staying with that not knowing. But that is insecure. So the need to feel uh, secure makes us uh, try to escape from ambivalence rather than um, 
letting it be as it is. Notice I didn't use the acceptance word. I'm not that keen on acceptance. It, it, you it, don't it, accept it. Uh, no, I, 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 acceptance seems to sound to me like some kind of um, uh, sulky position. Or mm. I'm not going to play anymore. I'm uh, right. Uh, it can all be rotten and mean, and um, I'm just going to. Uh, th there seems to be that atmosphere around acceptance, which I don't like, uh, which is why I say letting it be as it is. I think, right, well, this has got... Uh, acceptance to me seems to have um, a full stop or a period at the end of it, as if it wasn't going to change and move. Right. So... Um, the allowing a situation to be as it is, allowing the ambivalence to be as it is, it's still in motion. Do you know what it's going to... I mean, it might be apparent that that is really what it is, rather than this. Or this is what it is, rather than that. But that can happen on its own. You don't always have to force it just to say, is this person a friend or an enemy? You, know, you don't have to make that decision. Or do I like this person or not? You can say, well, I, I, I don't know. I could leave that open. It could become apparent. I don't have to make a decision quickly just so that I'll feel I'm in control of the situation. Because often being in control of the situation is not being in control of the situation. Being con in control of the situation is being free to move in any direction and not by freezing it. I'll finish with one more question. Okay. Tantra's transformation, what are we transforming? What's transforming? The neuroses. We're transforming them into what they essentially are, the five Buddha wisdoms. Basically, we're transforming the neuroses into the non-dual state. So this is from a, a position, obviously, in which the neuroses are regarded as somewhat real. Once they're no longer real, you don't have to transform them. You can allow them to self-liberate because... But it depends where you start. With experience of the non-dual base, they can simply self-liberate. If you're not at the non-dual base, then the neuroses are far more solid in their appearance. So you can't let them self-liberate because, you know, they are not really apparitional. 
with the experience of the non-dual state, your neuroses, although they remain, uh, become apparitional. You can see through them. You're not dominated by them, but they're still circling around the place, you know. Yeah. You know, you can, <laughs> they're there, you know. In terms of Tantra, they're more solid. In terms of Sutra, they're totally solid. <laughs> so it just depends how solid the neuroses are, what approach. If they're totally solid, you've got to renounce them. Okay. If they're viscous, <laughs> you can transform them. If they're apparitional, you can, self, you can allow them to self-liberate. It just depends. So what's being transformed is we're looking at the energetic quality of the neuroses, which is what links them with the, with the non-dual state. Which is why um, Tantra is extremely colorful, uh, highly artistic. This is why it contains, uh, I mean, we were talking earlier about ritual and symbolism, but uh, it's better to think of it as art. You know, it's ballet, it's painting, it's sculpture, it's poetry, prose, um, theater, dance. You know, if you look at the practice of Badriana, it contains all of that. So to be a tantrika is to be an artist. because an artist is dealing with energy. You know, the, the energy of color, shape, form, everything. So transformation in that sense is an artistic process. Okay, wonderful. Well, thank you very much, Rinpoche. It's been really delightful. Glad it's been interesting. <laughs> yeah. Thank you for your questions. I, I Very was, interesting. I always enjoy questions. It's not always easy to answer them um, in a way that everyone's going to understand. Or, or sure. Some of them sound simple and then get quite involved. Oh, yeah. Um, 